Hi guys, this is Jamie Pride and welcome to episode 9 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Jamie Pride and thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. If you work in the Australian startup scene and don't know who Alan Jones is, then you must have been living under a rock. Formerly of Yahoo Australia, Alan mentors founders in startup accelerators, Blue Chili, Startmate, Catalyzer, and Collider on issues around lean startup methodology, product strategy, marketing, and team leadership. He's a founding investor in Australian tech startup venture funds, Pollinizer, Startmate, and Blackbird Ventures. And Alan is currently raising a new venture fund, M8 Ventures, focusing on pre-seed and seed investment in early stage tech startups in Australia and New Zealand. Alan is a prolific angel investor here and in the US with investments including Bug Crowd, Buzzy, Biteable, Alevio, Geosnap, Happy Co, How About Eat, Macropod, Miru Music, Propeller Aero, Top Me, Tsukuri, Workyard, UpGuard and Upper Story to name but a few. In this interview, Alan talks about what it means to be an entrepreneur in Australia and some of our cultural hangups around coming to terms with that. He also discusses how he manages stress and his views on what he looks for um, in a startup, solo founders versus co-founders, how to manage investors, and a lot, lot more. This is a bit of a long podcast, but Alan just had so many things to say. I couldn't cut anything out. If you're thinking about founding a startup or you're an existing founder, then I'm sure you will take away a lot from this interview. And I am here with Alan Jones from Mate Ventures. Welcome to the podcast. Good Jamie. Thanks for having me, mate. Hey, my pleasure. Um, look, I'd be great to just start with just a bit about your background. You've obviously had a pretty extraordinary career um, in technology and, and now in investing, um, but it'd be great just to kind of learn a little bit more about sort of your background and what you've been doing. Like you, I've been around for a long time. And, <laughs> and um, so uh, centuries ago, before the internet, um, I hopped onto the brontosaurus and took my clay tablet <laughs> down to the university and I studied actually this, media production and journalism and PR and well. worked in uh, publishing, first of all. And I was always a bit of a nerd and found my dream job in a computer magazine. So before there was an internet, you had to send a journalist to San Francisco to cover <laughs> a conference or an expo. No way. Just so that you have some editorial on the magazine that you could run an ad alongside so that a business might buy a new photocopier, right? Yep. So to be a journalist and a young journalist at that time in the glory days, it was incredible. We had desktop publishing so we could print magazines really cheaply but we had no internet so all of the consumption was driven by magazines and magazines are really important this is the, the page maker and quark express days and stuff exactly that exactly that and uh and unfortunately the World Wide web came along <laughs> and i saw it and i thought mm, this could be big and uh and so I, I thought i'd take a really big risk and make the jump from publishing magazine to publishing websites and, uh, and that turned out to be a smart time to do that because by the time all of the other journalists in the world decided that they better go online as well, it was kind of too late for a lot of them. Mm. Um, and, and there's been a few kind of big risks that, that worked out all right for me in the end through my career, you know, a few punctuation points, I guess, inflection points. That was one of them. I, I think the second one came along, I was working at Microsoft Mm. And I was working on some of the things that later became part of 9MSN, part of that MSN network. 
And by then I was a, I was a content producer. So I was like banging out online content. And then I became just a producer producer. For, so somebody who managed like the product development team. And uh, what happened there was I could see Microsoft and a bunch of other companies were trying to create a safe subset of the internet for users. And then there were all these other disruptive startups out there that wanted to to be open and free and they wanted to have mm. some relationship with customers but they want those customers to explore all of the good and bad in the internet and i thought i wanted to be part of that you know mm. i was a bit of a lefty um eco kind of person so i thought that would be the way to go free open source yeah yeah so i left big safe microsoft with a good salary and microsoft stock options to join this little scrappy tech startup that mo- nobody much had ever heard and that turned out to be yahoo and that was Again, you know, a very high risk move that I made that just panned out well. So I was there at Yahoo for the boom of the internet in the late 90s and early 2000. And then I was there for the dot-com crash. Mm. And I will always remember what I learned about the the stock market from seeing this company that had been profitable quarter on quarter since it first IPO'd that had billions of dollars of cash in the bank and suddenly was worth, you know, like a third of what it had been just a month prior. Um, so that taught me that basically the, the, the public markets, you know, look at research, but mainly they're driven by Sentiment. two emotions, yeah, fear and greed. Mm. And and majority of the market follows the rest of the market, right? So some influential opinion leader starts to get a bit fearful about the future and the rest of the market just follows them like a herd of wildebeest. Conversely, it goes the other way and sometimes it's all driven by greed. So it's not so much a, a matter of understanding, you know, what your company is and and what your customer is and all that kind of thing. It's understanding the fear and the greed in the market right now when you're a publicly listed company. Mm. Uh, so I left Yahoo in 2002 because by then Yahoo had become a giant corporation and uh, I had learned enough about myself by that stage that I knew that I was happier in smaller companies. Um, and so I went out um, to do a bunch of other startups with some other ex-Yahoo's, members of the Yahoo'sa, the, the <laughs> Yahoo diaspora. Sure. And uh, we thought we knew everything about building great tech startups because we'd built one. <laughs> <laughs> but one is not enough. And also the shelf life on what you learn from one generation of startups is very, very short. You know, it, it, the expiry date on that package is, is really soon. Um, and so everything that we'd learned from that sort of portal generation of startups was out of date by the time that second generation came along, which was partly about mobile and partly about social media. Um, so we learned a few expensive lessons in a couple of them. We, you know, we got away with our shirts, a little bit of money, enough confidence to try again. But then when I hit 40, I started to realize that on, on my track record, I would still be trying to raise money for my next startup when I was 70. And I thought maybe investors might not be so keen to back such an old guy, uh-huh. you know. And I thought, how can I participate in that early startup journey without actually being the startup founder myself? And uh, there were these people called angel investors. There was mm. almost none of them in Australia, but you could read about them online in the US. And I thought, I think I want to be one of those. And it turned out there was a bunch of other people in Australia thinking about doing that same thing as well. So people who had worked for a previous generation of tech in Australia and now wanted to do that um, and back those early companies themselves. So a lot of those people were some of the original people behind Startmate. Mm. Um, So getting started with the Startmate Accelerator gave me not just an opportunity to learn from really smart people, but it also gave me a chance to do deep due diligence on companies that I might want to consider investing in. And uh, and so working from with with Startmate, working with Polonizer, working with Blue Chili, um, 
along the way, I guess I've learned a bit more about the sorts of problems that companies at that very early accelerator stage face and how you might address some of those problems and fix some of them quickly and cheaply so you can continue your, your upward growth. Um, and so really that's, that's, that's my life now. I work with accelerator programs and, and try and invest in the best companies that I see from them. And you've uh, started your own seed investment fund, which is Mate Ventures. Yeah, right. So, so I'm asset rich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> words, I've got no money, and uh, and uh, the problem with being asset rich, in particularly with assets that are unlisted, is that you can't easily get out of them and turn them into money. Mm. And uh, and and meeting great founders regularly, um, you always get excited about people's potential and the potential of their business idea. And just want I want to I want to help this company. I want to participate in that future success. I want to write them a check. I haven't got any money, hmm. um, and so I you know I, I really genuinely have put most of my net wealth into shares in unlisted early stage tech companies. <laughs> you know we own our home. Uh, I have a laughable amount of super, like a hundred thousand dollars of super, which is not a good place to be when you're in your fifties. Um, and and no cash, right? So the only way forward from here is is to go to other investors and say, oh, here's the investment hypothesis that I've been using this time, and this is the success that I've had, and I've had some successes. Um, I need your money, and in return, I will I will help you participate in in the success of that investment hypothesis. Um, so M8 Ventures is a is a venture fund, you know, based on that um, investment hypothesis, and also kind of on the worldview that I share with my venture partner, Emily Rich. Um, so she and I both come from a, from a product background. You know, I was a product manager, I was a producer, and, and she's a CTO. She really can code, whereas I can just relate to coders. Mm. Um, and the two of us care a lot about um, doing right things by the community and reaching out and helping other founders. And, uh, and M8 Ventures is called M8 Ventures because we want to be mates with the people that we invest in. Um, for you know, it, you have a better life if you get to work with people who you like, mm. um, but also you'll work harder to help people when you like them. And at the early stages of a business, there's a lot of help required, and uh, and you want to have time um, and energy and motivation to help those people. So the more you like them, the more likely you're you're going to work later for them, um, introduce them to people that you know uh, you're taking a bit of a social risk to introduce them to. Um, and working harder with them to help them solve their problems. So it's called M8 Ventures because we're hoping that we're going to build a portfolio of, of mates. Okay. And um, look, the venture community has, I think, gone leaps and bounds uh, in Australia over the past even sort of three years in terms of um, later stage funds, bigger funds, um, more participation in sort of Series A, Series B. Um, yet uh, there's been, a, I think, a gap of institutional investment from sort of seed. And, you know, as you've rightly said, there's been a lot of, I think, um, angel investors in, in, in sort of Sydney Angels, Melbourne Angels. There's, mm. there's been angel investment from some high net worths and some family offices, but no real structured seed or pre-seed fund. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's that's a gap in the market. And is that yeah. something you, you saw? Yeah. When you graduate from an accelerator program, it's usually time to raise more money. Mm. Um, and, and you've been going through the accelerator program assuming that that would be the next step. Okay, mm. let's go out and raise seed. 
and generally you've got some some great traction and you've got a good team and a promising product and so you ought to be able to do it. But what happens too often is that most of that capital available for, for seed investment comes from individual angel investors mm. and trying to um, corral enough angel investors together to, to, to make a small seed round happen it can be really tough because angel investors aren't bound by – uh, a fund structure, you know, they are 100% driven by that fear and greed that they have, you know. It takes one set of bad news from one startup they've invested in and then suddenly the angel investors, well, uh, I'm not so sure about this startup mm. investing thing. Maybe I'll just put that on the back burner for a while. Um, or, or perhaps, you know, one day they'll be crazy about uh, machine learning. Show me machine learning startups. I can't get mm. enough of those. And then, you know, somebody else will tell them about autonomy and they'll go, oh, I can invest in Australian autonomous vehicle startups. I want to do that, you know. Mm. So it can be very, very hard to understand who's out there, who's actively investing. And then even when you're like partway through the process and you've got 20 of them that all look pretty interested, you know, one of them will bail, you know, because – there's been a death in the family or they've lost out on another investment. Uh, and then three or four others will go, well, well, he's the reason why I'm in. If he's in, I'm out as well. You know, mm. So that seed round should only take a few months to do and, and it might take two years. And too often that can mean that you know a company can die just mm. through lack of capital or perhaps it means that their growth slows more and more and more as they're trying to make their remaining cash last longer and longer and longer. When many investors look at that, they see what they believe is a sign of slowing growth. That means that the business is no good rather than the business hasn't been able to raise the capital. So we think that um, there should be a class of venture capital in Australia, as there is in, in Silicon Valley, where there are funds that specifically do focus on pre-seed and seed stage investment. Because when you're dealing with a fund, the fund has a bunch of capital. It's got to deploy that capital amongst a bunch of investments in a certain number of years. Mm. So they have to do that. So you can trust that. And you know, and that capital has to be invested on on a known investment hypothesis. So a fund isn't able to suddenly decide, oh, we're going to invest in butterflies now. Mm. You know, if if the fund told its investors they were going to invest in autonomous vehicles, that's what they have to do for the next five to ten years. Mm. So that gives startup founders some clarity, you know, oh, okay, I can understand that fund. I know which ones to pitch to. So we're hoping that M8 Ventures, you know, we don't want too much competition, but we're hoping that, that we're the first of a, of a generation, a new necessary thing in, in the Australian startup industry. And we're hoping we'll, we'll see some more of it in the future. And I guess that leads us to your investment thesis and, and I guess how you view your seed investments. Do you have a, uh, a priority in terms of looking at founders or is it business models? Is it traction? Um, look, when I speak to seed investors, it, it is a bit of a black art because the businesses are so early. Mm. It doesn't mean that you can't have a formal investment thesis and approach. But, you know, when I do speak to, you know, later seed and, and early sort of early seed investors, they, they, they have a varied view of their investment approaches. Um, what's yours? You've, you've worked probably more than anybody else in this country with early stage startups. So I'm really interested to hear your views. Well, one really important distinction is to be sure that you're investing in a tech startup and not an online business. Because mm. there are a lot of online businesses out there that will be successful businesses and they are using technology to help them sell things, but they're not really doing anything truly innovative. Somebody was pitching something to me the other day and it was a new you know, um, audience, a new customer segment, say, but they were selling that customer segment books. 
mm. that would be shipped to that customer. And yes, you know, Amazon is an enormous business, but that's uh, Amazon's value is in the technology that powers the sale of that. If you just went to Shopify and said, I'm going to start an online bookstore and sell books to this new vertical target segment, that's that could be a great online business. It's not a tech startup. So a tech startup is defined by the unique intellectual property that goes into how you solve a problem. Mm. So you can't just go off the shelf and take a bunch of components from other software vendors and say, hey, this is a, a tech startup. You've got to create something new. So that's a fundamental difference for me. Founders are important. Um, I don't have any particular um, uh, preference or, or, or um, uh, dislike for a particular kinds of business model. So I don't particularly care whether it's a two-sided marketplace or a software as a service or something or, or a mobile app store solution. That doesn't seem to matter too much to me. Founders are really important. I want to be mates with people, and mm. and um, I'm a pretty gregarious guy. But there's going to be people that I see <laughs> that trust, you know, employees and co-founders. That you've got to be treating the rest of the world well before, you know, and and, and I, you know, I don't, need, I need to see evidence of that over time. You don't have to come to me with a resume that says, and then I volunteered for, you know, Mother Teresa. Or, you know, no, no, no. I'll figure that out for myself. Do you have a view on um, solo founder versus co-founders? There's a group of investors in the market that are adamant that startups have a greater chance of success with co-founders rather than solo founders. My personal experience has been mixed. Um, what's your views? Yeah, I, I think the right way to approach that question is to say, well, what's the risk that choosing the wrong co-founder is going to kill the business? Mm. So... Uh, uh, businesses sometimes naturally arise amongst the the collaboration between you and I. So mm. we might sit down, discuss a problem, and both come up with a solution to that problem. Both find that we both care about it as much, and both find that we're both prepared to drop everything else and focus on that for a while. And that happens, and when that happens, that's magical mm. because you're you're sharing the load, and there's so much benefit in doing that. But most of the time, you're alone in the shower, and the light bulb goes off above your head, and yep. you oh, I could solve this problem with a nap. I gotta find me somebody who can help me build that app, you know. Yeah, and um, and and so a lot of the entrepreneurial journey is, you know, by its nature, a solo thing. And so when that person goes, uh, I need to find a CTO or I need to find a sales gun or something like that, they're going out to try and fill a competency need rather than I actually really need somebody to share this business with. And I think the smarter way forward is is to design an onboarding process so that somebody begins as a as a contractor, moves to a part-time or, or a full-time employee role, and then there's a, a structure to their compensation through equity and salary that over time they can earn their way into a co-founder position. Because mm. I think that's 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 the only way forward. Um, otherwise, you risk giving way too much of the company away to somebody who actually really, it's going to be a, an employee for a few years' time, and then you're going to have to try and find a way to buy them back out of that stake they have in the company because they don't love it as much as you do. Mm. I see that a lot, actually. I see commercial founders with great ideas, looking for technical co-founders as a route, almost as a route for free development you yeah. know, in a lot of instances. Yeah, to save money. Yeah, to save money. So they kind of go, okay, well, I can't afford to raise capital or I can't afford to bootstrap it and pay for a developer. So uh, often it's a fast route to market. And mm. I see a lot of those relationships where, you know, you're giving huge slices of equity to technical co-founders that aren't passionate about the product and are essentially just working for sweat that they could probably earn, you know, capital to do if they were if they were going to go and develop it. Yeah, and conversely, sometimes I see developers 
aspiring to be a technical co-founder for the for the for the boasting rights, mm. you know, to have that on their business card and to be invited to be on a panel because I'm a technical co-founder. Um, and I think that's a shame because I think if you look deep into your heart as a product person, uh, what you learn about yourself over time is, is that you care very much about the quality of the product that you're building and, and also who you're solving a problem for, you know. I, I, I like um, engineering mindset people that can't walk past a microwave with a flashing clock. <laughs> it's not it's their a, microwave. It's, a, it's, it's not their kitchen. But they just have, they, they yeah, just have to fix yeah. it. And they'll say to you, you know, uh, what's wrong with the microwave? And you go, oh, I don't know. It's always flashing. And they go, well, well I could fix that for you, you know. <laughs> and so it's like that fundamental motivation to help other people that I think makes an engineer so powerful and valuable in this world. Um, but once they've fixed that flashing clock, right, they're on to the next problem you know find me the next customer find me the next person who who can't fix mm. their thing um and so when somebody joins as a technical co-founder for the wrong reason often once they've solved all the interesting problems it's going to be a bit more complicated than setting the clock on the microwave but they'll solve all those interesting problems and then they're checked out mm. they're checked out emotionally and that's the hardest thing when you you're paying somebody in big income and they're bored about running a team for you and uh, they've got all this responsibility and no longer any of the reward. It's a very, very difficult relationship to, to, f- to improve or, or to find a way out of. Mm. And do you – look, founders come from all different shapes and, and they come in all different shapes and sizes and all different walks of life. Uh, however, do you believe that there's a set of characteristics that all good founders have and do you look for them when you're investing? No, no, I don't think I've ever been able to boil it down to just, just one set. Um, and, and of all the parameters in my investment hypothesis, that's probably the one that I've unconsciously avoided trying to make a formula out of. Mm. It's like I've, I've got my um, secret uh, herbs and spices and I don't want to share them with anybody mm. and, and I worry that if I you know, put it down on paper, I won't be able to help but share it with people. Um, there are traits that I see from people to, to from from founder to founder, um, and I worry sometimes that we uh, suffer from from um, cognitive biases that that mean oh when I see that trait again in somebody else I'm going to back them because the last successful investment I made that person had that trait as well. That means that that we miss out other opportunities from people that have traits that we've never backed before Mm. and it also means that we might ignore other aspects of that business or that product or that founder just because they've got that one trait that we recognize that we liked from last time so i i really try and avoid that and 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 try and force myself to get by beyond cognitive biases and, and 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 be open to the possibility that the next founder that i meet uh may challenge me and may still be successful that may not be what i expect to succeed in in a way you know i quite like the universe coming back to, to me you know five years later and going you know the universe opens up the financial review for me and i see somebody that i didn't think would make it making mm. it and i think well you know there's a lesson you know i can take something from that that's that's yeah. not all bad I'm not going to get a financial return from that, but I get a, you know, a wisdom return from that every time that happens. Yeah, if you've got a feedback cycle, um, that's a good segue um, in terms of that sort of feedback from founders. You've made many seed stage investments. Uh, what advice would you have for founders in dealing with investors, and and how do you like to be communicated with? I guess as an individual when you're investing, um, you know, on your personal account, but also you know now you're starting to sort of formalise that as a fund. 
I think a lot of founders that I speak with struggle with how to manage investors, um, especially if they haven't been through that process before. Um, there's a certain degree of, I think, defensiveness in some founders to say, okay, well, I've, I, I want the investors' money, but I don't want their participation in a lot of instances. Yeah. Then it's sort of like there's a risk that, oh, they're going to run the business. Um, to the opposite, where investors can be hugely valuable and advantageous. And, mm. and sort of what, what advice and guidance would you give in a general sense to, to founders? I guess I'd, I'd start with uh- – Understand whether raising investment is actually the right path for you. Mm. You know, so you, you mentioned there before, some people want to take the money, but then don't want to have any involvement with the investor. Yep. You know, yep. so so that's a that's a clear sign because most smart investors aren't going to want to have that relationship with you, and you know they may not be bold enough to tell you that that's the reason why they're not ultimately investing in the business, but they can waste weeks of your time in the meantime mm. getting to that point, and that may be the reason they walk away in the end. Everybody investing in the early stage of a tech startup is doing it for the same reason that I am. I want to continue to participate in the early stage of tech startup companies. That's what fills my heart with joy. Mm. But it can't be my company anymore because you know, I'm in my 50s <laughs> and I can't do those hours. You can be a startup <laughs> founder. Come on. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. Um, no, other people in their 50s can, but I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so – all of the people and all of the funds that might be prepared to invest in the early stages in your tech startup are going to want to be pretty close to the business and what's happening. And they're going to want to feel like you are acting on their advice, considering mm. it, challenging it maybe, but ultimately the advice is, is informing the direction of the business. So if you don't want that, then don't go raising money. Um, another important thing to understand about investment is uh, – there's no one round of investment which is the last round of investment. You know, Once you get on the investment path, that path goes on until there's an exit for everybody. That is the final round of investment. right? And so y- you will be, uh, say you raise a pre-seed round from some friends and family, right? So that sets you off. You now have to get a return for those people who invested in that business. So the most likely way to move forward with that is to keep growing the business as quickly as you can by raising a, a seed round. And then once you've got a seed round, you're prepping for Series A from a VC. And then a VC fund is going to help you run your business really, really hard so that they can start getting a return on their investment in the business. Those, those, everybody's expectation is that they're not going to get you know, like you know 1.25% return on their investment over five years. They want to see 50x. They want to see 100x. And the main way to do that is by raising more capital to, again, increase and increase the, the rate of growth of the business. So that drives everybody really hard in the business and you as the founder, you know, more so than anybody. So if you're not up for that journey, if you want to continue to have, you know, great quality of life and to take six-week holidays with, with your wife and kids or, or your, your spouse and kids, then maybe raising VC isn't, isn't right for you right now either, you know. Uh, it's possible to to grow a business through cash flow. It's possible mm-hmm. to grow a business through revenue. You can do debt financing. You can continue to borrow money from from friends and family, and grow a healthy, supportive, balanced business for everybody involved. Um, but you kind of can't really sort of opt out of the the VC investment path once you're on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you do, you're you're locked out of it forever, probably. And people are going to say, well, you know, we pumped a couple million into your business and then you sat back and started paying yourself more and 
taking longer holidays and yep. your, your office looks really nice, but <laughs> you know, where's my money back? Where's my return? Yeah. So you probably won't get a chance to do that to people twice. Mm. And I guess, do you have a view on sort of growth versus yield? I think that there's sort of been a shift sort of from – you know, startups that were like, yeah, we can continue to pump VC money in from round after round after round. And as long as the users are growing and as long as potentially market shares are growing, that's okay. And I have a sense that there's a shift f- towards, look, let's look at break even and let's understand, um, you know, when this business makes money, what are the unit economics? Um, and I guess that's always a fine balance. Uh, but I think I've seen this characteristic of really large series a and less and less vcs reserving for follow-on investment and what's your view yeah well first of all i think australia has always been of all the different startup ecosystems around the world we are the the startup culture that the focuses the most on breaking even on creating a survivable business you mm. know because we live in this arid climate this this hostile place <laughs> the, the vc desert of australia <laughs> yeah yeah we have no topsoil we have no water and we have very little investment capital right? yeah. for startups anyway yeah um and so everything's relative and so i think you're probably most of the time always going to find uh, a growth bias in the us and mm. in europe and in asia particularly in china and then in other startup cultures around the world, you're going to find more of a bias towards viability and, and breaking even and unit economics and so on. Um, and then each of those markets kind of is on a, a, on a, a sine wave over time, mm. bouncing between those two extremes according to the fear and the greed in that economy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, I think in Australia we are perhaps heading back at the moment towards viability again. Mm. back towards break-even and unit economics. Uh, I think we had uh, a period there where there was an inflow of capital from outside the startup ecosystem in Australia from mining and property, mm. um, uh, seeking um, comfortable with risk and looking for, for higher returns that they weren't seeing in their in the sector that they knew best. And, uh, and and that's still there to an extent, but, but definitely the heat's come off that. Um, and the other thing that's changed, I think, in the last few years is we're, uh, more Australians are more aware of, of long-term issues with the property market, mm. particularly residential property, and people are starting to think when the heat comes off of that, what's going to be the, the flow-on result of that, and, and should we be building companies that can just survive for the next five years? Mm. On that, I mean, I, I was speaking to somebody the other day, and it is surprising how underexposed Australia is as an economy to technology generally. I think if oh, you look yeah. if you look at the ASX, you look at the participation of superannuation funds in, in technology um, across the board, I think you know our, our overall exposure as an economy to technology is tiny. Um, what's your view on why that is? Is that just a characteristic of, of, I guess, we love digging stuff out of the ground? Or is it that we're, I think, cynical? And I, I, I still think there are segments of the Australian economy that are very much, oh, it's still, it's, it's, it's a fad. It's never going to catch on. What's your perspective? <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the historian, but I was reading something uh, by an Australian historian recently who was saying that there's the um, – an aspect of Australian culture where because of our perceived convict past that respectability matters much more to an Australian than to nearly anybody else. Wow. You know, like, you know, like to carry on like a larrikin and, 
you know, uh, moon somebody and that kind of thing. But, but we all want memberships to the SCG and the yeah, MCG. Yeah, we don't. We, we don't want to be seen as a crook. <laughs> and um, and 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 we've also inherited from from the UK, I think, um, a, a, a bit of skepticism about entrepreneurship in general. You know, mm. um, I've told this story on on podcasts before, so for listeners who've heard this, I'm sorry, but. When I was about eight or ten years old, uh, I was at a family barbecue, and I was asking my dad, you know, what do my uncles and aunties do, you know, when they're not being an uncle and auntie. And I asked about my uncle George, and my dad said, "Oh, your uncle George is an entrepreneur, son." And I said, "That's a big word, Dad. What's that?" And he said, "Well, it's a fancy French word that means he doesn't have a proper job." And <laughs> and I don't think my dad was alone in that, you know. And so he came from the UK. He came out as a ten-pound migrant, and mm. uh, and those is if if you were of a class, if you were middle class or upper class, and you were a professional, mm. you weren't building a, a nationwide network of, of, of businesses in your profession. You were the professional for your community, you know, with the village or the town or the city that you lived. You were its dentist or you were its neurosurgeon or you were its baker or candlestick maker, but you were geographically limited, you know. You were within your station. Mm. And I think in Australia we, we've inherited that. When we look at an entrepreneur and we think, who's this troublemaker? Mm. Who's trying to break out from their station in life? You know, what's wrong with them that they're trying to do that? You know, how long is it going to be before they fail? You know, and it's really hard for us to break out of that. Really hard. I think the the other thing that's really changed is that it hasn't been until the internet that we've had um, the market export potential for technology that we have today. You know, so there were tech, uh, software and hardware companies before the internet. But to put software onto a CD-ROM and put it in a box with a manual and then ship it thousands of miles to other countries, it was really economically unviable in Australia. It was possible mm -hmm. but challenging. Whereas now, you know, we have app stores um, and I can release it in an app store in 28 different countries on the same day at the same cost. Mm. Um, so we now have this remarkable opportunity where all of our other export industries you have to put something onto a big cargo ship and wait, you know, two months for it to get to its target customer, and all the while you're you're subject to, you know, export restrictions, export and restrictions, and 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 changing regulation and insurance and and weather and you know stuff goes off on the ship, um, and then of course there's just the commodity prices for most of the things that we export out of Australia, and 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 software, you know, ones and zeros have a very clearly understood um, commodity price. Mm. They just go down and down. They follow Moore's law, right? Yep. The cost of making software gets, you know, one-tenth, is it? One-tenth mm. every five years? It's like some logarithmic scale. Whatever Moore's yeah, law yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, the cost of making software, if compute, goes down and down and down, just like everything else in the technology industry. So, so it's not a sine wave. It's not ever going to come – well, maybe it will when we hit the limits of, of physics, right? But it's going to continue to go down for a long, long time. So it's a zero export cost industry for Australia. And mm. So that's why it's becoming big, but it, it has – the rest of the economy to eat you know software mm -hmm. has to eat the rest of the australian economy before it really has a big place and there's a lot of resources that we've got to we've got to overcome awful lot of resources and isn't it funny like australians you know oh you've done some exploratory tests of that lump of dirt over there and it might mm -hmm. have some copper in it here's 10 million dollars yeah i know it's fascinating yeah. i was talking about that with somebody the other day which is um we have a hugely speculative 
um, mindset when it comes to investing in resources, but we don't mm. when it comes to tech. And mm. I, I think that's really, I think that's really um, kind of interesting. Um, one thing I think we do have a limit of though here is is technology resources, and you know the challenge I think a lot of startups face is talent and mm. and finding good people um, we've only got a limited number of people in the workforce in Australia um, we've obviously got visa situations and challenges actually getting people into the country um, trying to find a good developer these days is scarcer than hen's teeth um, do you think that's a limiting factor on on growth of the of the ecosystem and and the economy for technology here generally for sure it's 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 one of the limiting factors for sure so we don't have an MIT we don't mm. have a Stanford we don't uh, teach most of our computer science to um, encourage people to to find a career in, in early stage tech. Um, you know, and, and the, the best way to be um, an employee of a, of a large successful technology company is to join it when it's when it's an early stage tech company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Join it when it's a startup in the hope that it'll become an mm. IBM one day. You know, so um, what we instead do is is we mostly teach young people to become an employee of, of an IBM today mm. you know? or you know, more likely, yeah, the IT department of a large bank or insurance mm. company or telco. Um, and so that is changing rapidly. You know, I know you spend some time mm. in Australian universities and I do too and they bear absolutely no relation to – you know, to the clay tablet and papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> university sector is changing as well, yeah. but so much of a university sector is focused on um, uh, fee-paying students. Mm. Um, and so I think our university market is distorted a bit by um, their need to provide an education that the market thinks that it wants mm. rather than taking um, a look to the future and thinking, well, this is actually going to be the the – uh, education requirement for our, for our future workforce. Mm. Instead, we're going well. In what subjects and how do we teach in order to make the most money for our university in the next ten years? Mm. So I think I think that is definitely a challenge. And then the next challenge that we have is so much of our economy is represented by large corporates, and there are so many IT departments that a smart young person can go and work for that. You know, they can seriously earn three, four, five times as much money working mm. for a big five bank in their first year out of uni as they can working for a tech startup. So, you know, why would you do it? You know, as a young person, you're thinking probably, you know, I'm going to want to own some real estate at some point. Mm. And that's getting more and more expensive all the time. And most of my friends in corporate jobs are getting locked out of even that opportunity anyway. Mm. So, you know, why I'm going to go and join a tech startup and, and earn one fifth of that. I think, you know, strangely, what is starting to happen is the gap between um, the housing affordability is actually starting to drive some young people back towards tech startups because they're thinking... Well, I can't afford it anyway. Yeah, the only way I might ever be able to do it is to work for a tech startup and suddenly get a 1,000x return. Yep, yep. And um, do you, to that extent, do you think entrepreneurialism can be taught? And, you know, I've I've sort of oscillated back and forth on whether or not you know, it's sort of it's it's something that's inside you and it's in your DNA, or whether or not you can you can be taught those skills. I think one of the things that the Australian education sector has challenges with is that sure they can teach software development and 
a lot of the times that's well at a date. I mean, I, I think I learned Fortran 77 when I was at UTS, <laughs> although I'm sure they're not teaching that anymore. Um, UTS. Although, uh, but I do see a lot of, um, you know, I, I think a lot of universities struggle to stay current um, with, you know, with current SDLC and a bunch mm-hmm. of other things. But in terms of entrepreneurialism, and I think there's a lot of courses around innovation and there's a lot of courses um, that are sort of, sort of professing to be focused on entrepreneurship. But, but is, what's your views? I mean, do you think that's something we need to make more investment in and, and you know, can educational institutions be successful teaching entrepreneurship? I think an entrepreneurship education is important for everybody mm. in, in all uh, academic disciplines uh, because the nature of organizations change when we um, have everybody in there with some entrepreneurial skills. Um, and, and entrepreneurial skill set needs to include the ability to evaluate other people's entrepreneurship as well. It's not just about being an entrepreneur yourself, but mm. looking at you know, this troublemaker in a division of your organization that wants to do something differently and, and you having the entrepreneurship skills to be able to evaluate their proposal and say, okay, mm-hmm. you're a person who qualifies you know, for backing or not. Um, so I, I think it's really, really interesting and exciting to see entrepreneurship being taught across all um, academic disciplines or, or more and more academic disciplines all of the time. As a field of study in itself, I think it, it, it is better suited to um, uh, applications in in larger organizations than small tech startups. I think the entrepreneurship that happens in small tech startups is, is um, best enabled through um, making people aware that it's that it's possible. So showing them role models and allowing them to spend time in the company of 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 people, you know, practicing the art of entrepreneurship. So mm. you know, I love to see. Um, uh, some of Australia's best tech startup people sp- spending time with an intern or two. You mm. know? I think I think that's a really great way to understand. Well, you know, how does this person manage their time? How do they look at you know what they do next? How do they manage the team without getting caught up? You know, hundred percent of managing a team all day. How do they get time out to think about what they're going to do next? And, and mo- probably most important of all, like you know, why? Like, mm. what's in it for them? Because in order for there to be something in it for me, I need to see what's in it for them. Mm. So, you know, most entrepreneurship and early stage tech startup comes out of the efficiency of the use of your time, how effective you are being able to focus on what matters most right now in your business, um, and how you manage the interactions with service providers, employees, um, business partnerships, customers, and so on, so that they feel like they're getting full use of your time and you're being able to manage that relationship so it serves the business best. And so it's sort of that apprenticeship approach as well, right, which is, yeah. you know, intern, apprentice, you know, see how other people do it as well. You um, you work with some of the, you know, leading incubators and accelerators in Australia. How prepared are the people you see when they apply to some of these cohorts? And- oh, man, when they apply, mm. um, not prepared at all. And and that's as it should be. Uh, mm. So, you know, if people ask me, um, you know, I, I want to find out why I wasn't accepted into mm. this or that accelerator. Um, if I've got time, I'm happy to go through an application with them and say, well, it might have been this and might, but it might have been that. And they might say to me, well, um, is, it, is it, am I no good? Is the idea no good? And mm. No, like you've got to understand that an accelerator program with 10 places probably receives five, 600 applications. And, uh, and so you may have a viable idea. You may be a great entrepreneur. You just weren't in the top 10 
this time around. You might be 11th or 12th. Well, you know? What's the biggest misconception that you think people have when they think about tech for the first time and coming into those sort of programs? Oh, I think the biggest single misconception is that non-technical people believe they have to find a technical person and that then they'll be free to just do all the business, you know, all the marketing and the sales <laughs> the and bus- the HR business and ops, stuff. <laughs> you know, we'll get a tech person and, and, you know, not only will they help me connect to the printer and figure <laughs> out why my email isn't working, um, but they're also going to build this amazing <laughs> technology platform that, you know, these days it's going to have AI in it. Awesome. Oh, no, and, some, and an ICO. Yeah. <laughs> and they just get to order Aeron chairs. <laughs> so the, um, the, the, the journey for a non-technical um, tech startup founder is the, the journey is to learn about technology. Mm. You know, uh, and, and it mystifies me still in technology investment. How many people investing in technology know so little about the technology behind the companies they're investing in? Mm. You know, obsessing about who the founder is and and uh, you know the the business model and the unit metrics and so on and so forth. But yeah, but like, do you understand what they're making and mm. how long that's going to take and how long the next bit's going to take and who's involved and how they work together? Mm. You know, like you wouldn't invest in a, in a Formula One team without understanding a bit about how the pit crew works, you know, mm. and, and how an internal combustion engine works. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of reassuring to me in a way because I know a little bit about how that works and, uh, and sometimes I like to think that gives me a little bit of an edge. Well, I think it's a loaded question. I mean, for me, the heart of, of a lot of technology investing is understanding product management. And mm. look, and, and as you probably know better than I do, for me, the the heart of a tech startup is its product, mm. and I think everything revolves around that technology and engineering and go to market and a bunch of other things. That obviously gives you an ed- edge as an investor. Mm. Um, but I think f- my my view when I work with non technical co founders or founders is to say, you know, you really need to be closely aligned with product and product management. It's it's mm. for me, it's not necessarily about commercial founders. Co founders think that they need to be focused on sales. Um, but mm. for me, it's it's actually that link between the future and potential customer, the problem you're solving, and the product. Yeah, yeah. We we're when when we set out to build something out of software, we're we're building an invisible bridge. Mm. You know? So say there's an obstacle like the, the freeway behind you over there. Um, the the product development team is going to build a bridge over that obstacle for the customer. Uh, and and the problem with building it out of software is it's invisible until it's finished. Mm-hmm. And even when it's finished, most people using that bridge won't be able to actually see the bridge structure themselves. They'll be able to see like the footpath under them, the handrail maybe, and the rest of it will be invisible because mm-hmm. that's how software works. Like nobody wants to know. Mm-hmm. It looks like the matrix when it flicks past on screen. <laughs> Who knows what that stuff is? You know. Yep. So we're building invisible bridges. That means that. Um, for most of us, we we have no idea, you know, what sort of con- you know the architecture of it. We we don't understand how big the footprint will be, and we particularly don't understand how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to run the business side of a startup very much means learning to build your own estimates of 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 how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost by understanding how those invisible bridges are built. Mm. Um, if so, if somebody was out there and they're thinking about coming into the sector and they've got an idea, what would your advice be to, to potentially a school leaver or somebody who's at university and thinking about a product idea? Do you have a, a, a set of resources that you recommend, books or an approach? What's your view on how somebody with an idea starts to make that more tangible? Um, I. Um 
a really important set of skills in a founder is, is the ability to make friends and pull a team together. Um, and so, so I would, I would say, like you know, your first step is to assemble your super team. You know, yep. your you've got some special skills, hopefully, and you want to try and get your um, uh, uh, the rest of your superheroes to, together. And and you can't spend the rest of your life searching the world for those superheroes. You need to work with the people you have around you right now and and have the empathy and and uh, the understanding to be able to see the superhero skills in other people draw them out and and recruit them to this shared goal so i think you know uh, the very very first step should be let me figure out who my super team is, is going to need to include and see if i know any of them already and but start to talk to people start to learn um there's a really good people uh, a book for for non-technical founders. Um, the author is Joel Spolsky, and the, and the book is called Managing Humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's and it's written um, largely for the technology industry, but it's very accessible, very readable, and it's a really good primer for starting to understand how software development works um, and why you know classic things like well, what if we just put another thirty developers on it? Could we get it done quicker? <laughs> you know, answers to questions like that. Mm. Um, which will really help people uh, get started. Um, there's so much good blog content out there, and, and almost all of it has uh, a, a longer shelf life than most of the books that are out there. So I'd really recommend getting on Medium, mm. um, starting to read some of the the posts there that are tagged startups, um, and then you know get into um, uh, hackathons as as a really useful way to to spend you know from Friday night through to Sunday, participating in somebody else's super team. Mm-hmm. And uh, seeing if you've got something to contribute to their idea, maybe taking an idea along of your own and getting practice building your own super team out of the other people that attend the hackathon. Um, it's a great way to learn other ways of building technology products and uh, a really fantastic way to start to build out that network that might one day become part of your super team. Mm. Um, and I guess the as, as sort of things go on, you mentor a lot of startups, and the startup journey can be a roller coaster for for founders. The highs of highs, the lowest of lows. When you're working with founders as a mentor, what advice do you give them for that sort of sustainability or or longevity? You know, some of them are going to have you know hit it out of the park. You know, we've been very fortunate, I think, in Australia where we've had a lot of our unicorns that have been you know first at bat you know, straight mm. out, which is great, but a lot of other founders go through this sort of daily struggle. Mm. Um, when you're working in an accelerator, what advice do you give founders around sort of, you know, how do you keep, how do you sort of dig deep and develop that resilience? Um, my first startup wasn't successful <laughs> and neither was my second, you know, and and so when somebody joins an accelerator program that I'm mentoring in, usually it's their first startup. So I would start with, saying to most founders I'm really optimistic about your startup that's why you're here in this accelerator program I'm really optimistic about you and I think you're going to make a great startup entrepreneur but we need to design co-design a life path for you that that assumes that this startup probably won't succeed you'll take some skills and some experience and some relationships and some trust with you from this startup to the next one and that's going to be how you're going to build your startup entrepreneurial career. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this first one will be successful. Mm. Awesome, great problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> but but the way to go forward is to is to always be thinking, you know, what am I going to take with me from this one? Because this one probably won't. 
Mm. You know, maybe number four, maybe number five, maybe number eight. So I need to design my life so that I've got the the resilience and the reserves that I need to get through this journey and then the next journey and then the next journey because you know it is a journey. Um, you know, I still work hard every day because I can't afford not to. Mm. You know, um, I, you know I'm, I'm not on the breadline, um, mm-hmm. but I still have a bunch of stuff to do before before I'm finished. You know, financially and and professionally. Um, and I don't have very many years left. So, <laughs> um, and so for me, it's been that journey too. You know, I've had, I've, I've had more swings than hits mm. and, um, everybody probably will. So that's a really good place to start from, you know. And, uh, how does that sort of translate with, with your investment thesis? So do you guys, are you guys looking at a portfolio approach? I mean, obviously everybody's looking at trying to minimize the risks of each individual investment, but, you know, the traditional VC approach has been, you know, let's lay a lot of bets and, uh, see whether or not any of them pay off. I think in the seed, uh, space historically in North America, people like 500 Startups, for example, have laid lots and lots and lots of bets and they've been pretty mm. successful at that. Um, does M8 have a view or will it have a view in terms of, you know, are you guys looking to deploy a lot of smaller bets or are you looking to make deeper bets? What's what's your current view on that in terms yeah. of risk? I, th- I think that, that traditional VC approach, uh, the portfolio approach of, of, you know, sometimes – called spray and pray mm. um I, I think that's a factor of of the sheer volume of capital available in, in the u.s market and how comfortable with risk it is mm. and, and i don't think it's a it's a great model for australia you know now we're seeing bigger and bigger funds come together which is fantastic we're starting to see superannuation fund money come in and that's fantastic as well mm. but i do think that that those sources of capital um aren't don't have the right relationship to risk long term to be to be making spray and pray bets across a big portfolio um and i think the other problem with uh that approach is that it ignores the human cost you know mm-hmm. so venture capital at scale in the united states doesn't give an f about you no. individually as a founder and and i i'm just i'm not that guy mm. i'm not ever going to be able to do that and it would kill me to be forced to do it. Because you know? the elephant in the room is that most founders don't survive the C round, right, in the US. Yeah, yeah. And I, w- I would rather, you know, play my guitar on the street corner and, uh-huh. you know, get a hat full of coins at the end of every day than, than to be a billionaire off the backs of broken people. Mm. So, and, and, and Emily's the same kind of uh, person as well. So we're not going to do it that way. Uh, we're raising the, the small size fund that we can to get an ESV CLP status mm. and we're going to, uh, trust that our skills and our experience and our network of connections is going to help us get a uh, a better return out of a smaller portfolio. Mm. Um, it could be we'll be wrong, um, mm. but we'll see. Yeah, and 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 look, that's a pretty good segue. I mean, you and Emily have known each other for a little bit. How did you guys get together, and and how do you choose a, a fellow GP? I mean, that must be a bit of a challenge as a co-founder to oh, a certain degree. It's it's a huge challenge, you know. So so. Um, I would say to anybody else, um, so, uh, you know, a venture fund is a five to 10 year commitment to yep, somebody. It's a it's, marriage. It's a marriage and, um, and it's expensive and painful and slow to get out of. So, you know, don't rush into any commitment like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, make sure you're choosing somebody who's, who's also up for, for that same level of commitment mm-hmm. as well. Don't, don't choose somebody who actually, you know, really just wants to be an employee. Mm-hmm. You know, employ that person instead. Uh, so I had actually, I did have a different 
GP in mind um, when I thought about doing MA Ventures. So somebody else who, who had also been thinking about it for a while. Mm. And uh, and that person and I spent uh, a good few months out there researching, speaking to other VCs we, we uh, respected, hoping that we could learn more about how to do this. And uh, unfortunately, that person came back to me after that period and said, you know, everything I've learned about this tells me that I'd be terrible at it and I'd hate it. I think I want to go back and, and be a founder again. So that set me off, um, set me back quite a ways because nobody's really going to back a, a, a solo um, a general partner in a fund because mm-hmm. if that one person gets hit by a bus, funds all over, yeah, everybody yeah. loses their money. You definitely, you know, you, you want to minimize your risk a bit by, by having more than one GP. Um, but at the same time, it should be somebody that you're confident is, is up for that same mm-hmm. level of commitment, has the experience, um, definitely wants to do it with you and, and not with any number of other firms. So Emily and I uh, met together on, on a um, pretty intense tour that Ian Gardner put together yep, for Australian VCs. Yeah. So, so Ian put together um, a, a trip over to, to um, Auckland and, and Wellington to meet a bunch of New Zealand startups and, and Emily and I were on that trip and we looked at a few companies together and um, and I could tell by the questions she was asking um, that you know I could kind of see how her mind unpacked a deal and a company and a founder and how she resembled the bits and, and, and understood it. And I could see that it was complementary but different to my own. Mm. And and I guess similarly she could see the same kind of thing in me. Another thing in common between the two of us is is we were both pretty quick with our questions. So mm. a startup would get up and pitch at a at a meeting in front of a room full of Australian VCs. And Emily and I would often be, you know, the first or the second in with our first question. And so I like the way that she was thinking quickly about this because at, at pre-seed and seed stage, we don't have a lot of time. We have to make decisions pretty rapidly. And so the first step to that is not, well, let's sit back and watch this company's mm. revenue over the next six months. It's like, okay, let's understand this as rapidly as we can. Where do we start? What's the one question that's going to like move the needle the most, you know, Every question's got to move the needle towards invest or not invest, right? So mm. starting with the first question, what's the one that's going to move the needle the furthest? And then where does that take me from there? You know, So you need that first question, then you need another three or four questions lined up mm. to go. And Emily could just go bang, 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 bang. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. That's interesting. Tell me about this. And I could see where she was going with it. So I thought, okay, here's a person that I, that I relate to. Um, equally, like me, she's you know she's an outsider. She hasn't worked ten years in banking. She's mm. not a man. She doesn't have an MBA. She doesn't come from a funds management background. She hasn't worked for another VC before. Like me, she's a, a scruffy nerd in jeans and t-shirt and likes to re- ride a skateboard and listen to loud <laughs> music. You know, um, and so in one way, I guess you know, for for an investor confidence and certitude, it, it might be nice to have somebody with that traditional banking funds management background that's just come out of a big fund and and you know has a, a bunch of uh wealthy mates and ex-clients that they might be able to call upon and raise a bit of money quickly um and and to partner with that you'd have like the yin and the yang you know mm. i'd be the scruffy nerd and they'd be the, mm. the the business person um but then the other way to go with it is well let's you know every business is a culture mm. you either explicitly create it or it accidentally happens you know so MA Ventures will have a culture. Maybe our culture should be scruffy nerds in jeans and T-shirts and skateboards. Yeah. Maybe that's how we roll. Investing in other scruffy nerds in yeah. jeans and T-shirts. Yeah, so everything is, you know, every startup is in a process of customer discovery and mm. we're in the process of customer discovery to see whether people with money looking to invest in things might be interested in backing a couple of scruffy nerds. Mm. 
Fantastic. Um, just to close off on a couple of questions. So in terms of how you manage your day, do you formally set aside time for pitches or are you, uh, you know, I just going to kick back at the oh, beach? Oh, my uh, Achilles heel. And, yeah, so, so tell, me, <laughs> tell me about your productivity habits or not. Oh, I mean, dear. Are you, are you a formal guy or are you just a kind of get up and drink some coffee kind of a guy? The best spin I can put on my productivity is that um, I generally assume that, that no day is going to go according to plan. Um, and <laughs> Keep it light and uh, you know unstructured. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think is that just code for saying that you don't plan? Yeah, yeah, I'm a bit chaotic. Um, so actually, like one, you know, one of my first fascinations with technology was that it would it would help me manage my life. It would mm. help me remember where and when I was meant to be in a place. Uh, you know, so at school, you know, what my schedule was for the day. Like I needed not just to, to be written down in the back of an exercise book, but I needed a thing that would make a noise to remind me to go to my next class. Um, so I was an early adopter of things like um, uh, those sharp personal oh, electric the, the, like organizers, the Casio ones, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. as an as an early professional out there in the world, I had no freaking clue. Without <laughs> that thing, I was lost. You know, and so they talk about how. Um, uh, there's a theory of the extended mind where when we start trusting a piece of technology to store all, all of our phone numbers, we start forgetting the phone mm. numbers that we used to remember. Right? Yep. And so I was a, I'm was i an early uh, uh, person into the theory of extended mind because as soon as I could find technology to mm. offload my life to, I, I got right into that because otherwise I'm a mess. Mm. Um, so uh, other than that, um, so – Sorry. No, are you, are you a zero inbox email guy? Like, are you? Um, only when the stress gets to me. <laughs> Do you declare email bankruptcy? <laughs> <laughs> only when the stress gets to me. I'm one of those people who will go select all archive right. and trust that. <laughs> Somebody wanted to contact you badly enough, yeah. they'll contact you? Yeah, yeah, I do that from time to time. But I do feel that. I do feel that stress. Um mm. It's, it's not like I can have, you know, 3,000 emails, even if they're read and archived, I still, you know, there's a there's little incremental degree of stress that each one of those. You've forgotten something? Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, it gets to me. And um, uh, one interesting that I've found is, is that um, by going completely offline for lengthy periods of time, um, I've been able to, that, that's been a way of, so, you know, I didn't do it for this reason, but... Um, uh, my wife and I took our, our, our young son to the Himalayas uh, when he was about five years old. And uh, in, in uh, I guess that would have been uh, 2004. And in 2004, there, there, there wasn't a lot of internet connectivity or phone connectivity <laughs> out in that part of the world. Yep. Um, and and uh, and the you know the economy was pretty bad. I had live investments out on the field, but it was something really important to us that we wanted to to do. And so I just had mm. to put in that auto reply in my emails saying I'm going to be entirely offline for like the next six weeks. There's literally no way to reach me. Furthermore, you won't be able to you know find a phone that you can call me on, and the, and I won't be reading any newspapers, or I've got mm. no clue till I get back. Um, and so for the first couple of days. You know, getting to the Himalayas, I was anxious as hell, mm. desperately looking for ways to, you know, I'll go into the hotel business center and <laughs> check in to my web email. Um, but then, you know, once there was literally no way for me to do it, um, I forgot all about it. And it wasn't until I got back to civilization that I went, oh, yeah, that's right. Email. Email. And I felt <laughs> You so... have 6,000 unreplied emails. <laughs> well, even then, like it, it, that experience of being divorced from it for, for a while, I created kind of a firewall, kind mm. of a, a trench between me and my email that persisted for a couple of weeks, you know, mm. probably. And so each time that I do that now, that 
trench gets a little bit more permanent and a little bit more, you know. So I'm hoping over repeated um, enforced unpluggings, yeah. <laughs> I can have a more peer-to-peer relationship with my email rather than being a slave to it. Yeah, I have like I have a really unhealthy relationship with my phone and suffer from massive anxiety just even sitting here thinking that I'm not touching mm. my phone. Um, however, I deleted my email client off my phone over the Christmas break oh, um, wow. and, and went for about two weeks without email on my phone and, wow. and I had to actually sit at a desk and do email. Like I got rid of mobile email entirely and it was probably a similar experience in the sense that I had three days of anxiety mm. um, and then I sort of felt liberated mm. actually. I felt um, this sort of sense of um, I had so much extra time. I didn't know what to mm. do to be really honest because I felt this sort of baseline level of I'm always checking email or I've mm. got something to check. And um, you know what also I, I didn't tell the other half of that story too but when I came back from six weeks, Everything was okay. Yeah, my so world, the, the, the world didn't down. <laughs> the world, the world is still survives without email. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, how do you generally achieve balance and deal with stress in your life? Um, um, well, generally, I haven't dealt, yep. dealt with it very well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a bit of a thread of bipolar disorder in the in the men in my family, and and uh, I'm fortunate enough not to suffer from too much from the depressive side of that, mm-hmm. but definitely the the, the manic side of it, I, I get to that. And so for a lot of my career, working in deadline-driven professions like like um, uh, journalism, um, I only made it worse kind of because I got hooked on my ability to file right on deadline or even to know when my deadline wasn't real and there was actually another couple of hours of buffer behind that and I would consciously – you know, not begin it until the deadline and then finish it in an hour just because I could, you know. So I created all these unhealthy behaviors early in my life. Um, and and uh, and it's affected my health. It's affected um, a lot of aspects of my health over time. But, yeah, last last year I had a, um, um, I had a persistent arrhythmia, cardiac arrhythmia, mm. that I ignored and ignored and, and ignored. And uh, it became a 24-7 thing and even then uh, because I was in Silicon Valley and had a lot to do at, at that time, I thought I'll be back home in 10 days. It's not a heart attack. you know. Wow. I'll just keep a lid on it. Um, and so I kept a lid on it for, for too long and, and when I got back to Sydney, uh, completely co- collapsed while in the process of telling my wife what I was feeling and that I was going to go and see the doctor the next day. So it was like the moment I opened up to somebody about what I was feeling, my body just went, oh, that's it. finally, We're, our yeah. chance, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'd like to think that I learned a lot from, from that experience. Um, and, and so w- one of the ways of, of dealing with stress has to be being open and communicating with others about what we're feeling um, and what it means. So Emily and I li- uh, live uh, remotely connected lives. You know, she works for Microsoft at the moment. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm moving from accelerator to accelerator. And, uh, and so we're on Slack a lot and message and, and we meet up when we can. Um, but it's really important not just to go through, you know, the tasks that need to be done and the goals and the projects and stuff, but also actually to talk about, you know, how we're feeling. Because um, sometimes, you know, she'll be a bit down on this and I'll be a bit up on it or we'll both be down or both up. Um, we need to get into the habit of, of having an emotional relationship as well as a task-based relationship. Mm. And what I was lacking, you know, what caused my ultimately my heart problem was that I, f- entirely for internal reasons, didn't feel that I could communicate what I was feeling, the stress that I was under, and, and the physical symptoms of that. 
mm. to the people around me. I was in San Francisco with my teenage son mm. and didn't feel that I could tell him anything about it at all. You know, that's that's wrong. That's probably half the reason why I ended up in hospital. Mm. Um, so since then, I've tried to work hard on being more emotionally available to the startup founders that I work with um, because uh, because that's necessary, right? Mm. Um, you don't want to see just the side of a founder that the founder wants thinks that they should show you. You mm. want to see the, the whole founder and you can't – Build a successful business out of only the, the the productive bits of the person. You need the whole person to be productive and healthy as as, as much as possible. Mm. Um, and you know, it's 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 early days. Uh, I you know, I, I didn't grow up being very emotionally accessible, mm. uh, and so I, I'm learning to do it and learning not to interrupt people when they're telling me how they feel <laughs> to take them back to what they've got to do. You know, uh, look, and I think it. Uh, I, I mean, I know I personally suffered from yeah. from you know physical, mental, and emotional challenges over the over the past recent couple of years, um, and I think one of the things that did was open my eyes to the fact that there are a lot of people who are suffering in the ecosystem because they feel they can't share their issues because so because they're they're surrounded by this sort of curated. Uh, sense of I'm crushing it or, yeah. or people aren't vulnerable or don't want to be vulnerable enough to to talk about their issues. And, and you know, yeah. there's a lot of people numbing out through sort of drug and alcohol abuse. There's people sort of with, you know, anxiety disorders, depression, suicidal thoughts. There's a whole bunch of challenges, I think, that are exacerbated exacerbated by the nature of entrepreneurialism and the fact yeah. that we, we live without safety nets. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm 45 and, you know, yeah. unless you've had your 100x return, you know, a lot of us are asset rich and, and hmm. not cash rich. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I sort of see founders that are afraid to go and talk to their spouse about the fact that they are about to run out of runway or hmm. that they've had to, you know, fire their co-founder or they're not raising the capital. And there's a lot of pressure placed on on people. Even even more experienced founders, I think, struggle with it as well. Yeah, for sure. I love those fuck up nights that yeah. people are, are – oh, sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Warning. No, we're explicit podcast. Excellent, okay. cool. Um, uh, so I think that's a really positive trend. People getting up in front of a group of industry peers and talking about all the mistakes that they've made. I think mm. that's a really good thing. But I do think, though, from some of those that I've attended, oftentimes that tends towards like the the business model mistakes. The, sur- that we the made. surface, exactly. Yeah, yeah, or all of the business stuff, at least mm. the business and the tech stuff. We're not talking so much about the the human stuff. The it, it is. I mean, I, look, I've seen the train wreck Tuesdays or the fuck up Fridays and and those kind of areas. And look, I think it's a good start. So, yeah. so I think it's it's more of a, um, I guess, an early stage indication that people are prepared to talk about it. But I, I'm yet to see many people come and say, "Do you know what? Look, I, I wasn't ready. You know, I I wasn't yeah. I wasn't in in the right headspace, or I was doing the wrong things, or I made these mistakes." And and it is it is challenging. I think one of the things I've spoken about with previous guests is that there is a stigma associated with failure in Australia. Like to a certain degree, totally. um, we have this. 
um, you know, you talk about this sort of uh, to a certain degree societal stratification where we, you mm. know, we don't like entrepreneurs necessarily. Um, I think we've got a different relationship with failure here than we do uh, than they do in the US, for example, where mm. it's almost seen as a rite of passage. Um, yet there's still a stigma associated with with failure. Mm. Um, whereas you know your success here gets you your next seat at the table. Yeah. Um, whereas your failure gets you you know a, a, a probably a chance to explain. Yeah. 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 So you know there's there's definitely still uh, a class system here that that some some of us are born you know into a different class to others. Uh, you know, I can show you very, very clearly the data shows that you can take a smart kid and put them in a non-selective government school and they'll perform just as well as if they went to one of the most exclusive schools in the country. There's no question that that is true. Um, and so the people who choose to spend so much more money to put their kids through a, a very expensive private school do it for two reasons. Either they're worried that the kid isn't very smart, <laughs> which is a bit of a bummer. Um, but the other is they're, they're consciously, you know, seeking to put their kid into, into a class. Mm. you know into a class and that's okay you know if that's the way the world works so be it but um it, we as entrepreneurs are are you know trying to bust through those walls mm. trying to go from from something to another thing there, you know there's none of us that are just trying to fit in mm. and uh and that's stressful and that's painful um emotional and scary and and the f you know, i guess the the first step is is to learn to communicate about that with other people who care about us and the only way to learn how to communicate about that is actually to, is to start talking mm. <laughs> yeah look i mean i found that myself personally which is you know it's been a pretty cathartic experience although i think it sort of it fluctuates for me personally it comes from you know, one of my mentors said you know it's sort of cleaning wounds versus picking at scabs so yeah, you nice. know so eventually you know you want to clean the wound but you want it to heal over as well and and so mm -hmm. there comes a point in time where you don't want to talk about it anymore mm -hmm. um because mm -hmm. it just because it just sort of like you know you're on the record for having spoken about it so many different times and um yeah look i think it's i think it's really important um, for me, the thing that I'm most passionate about is is starting to start a dialogue around, um, you know, the challenges, both mental, physical, emotional, that entrepreneurs are facing. I'm starting to do some research with Swinburne University looking at, you know, entrepreneurial wellness and, and health, um, which we'll be able to sort of talk about a little bit more in, in coming months. Um, but I think just having those support networks and, and I guess starting the conversation is, is really, really important. Yeah, there are accelerator mentors that, that make – a founder cry, mm. you know. There, there are people out there in the industry, you know, deliberately name names, yeah, 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 who who are pretty destructive. Um, but then there is a smaller subset of of mentors out there um, in whose company it's safe to cry, mm. and that's a that's a very different thing. So I would say that's that's goal for me. Like mm. I, I want people to trust me, to feel comfortable in my presence, to tell me about how they really feel, and if they how they really feel is is. You know about bursting into tears. You know, I'm, I want them to know that I'm there for them. I'm there to help. I think that's really nice. Do you think that whose responsibility is it? Do you think? Do you think that um, incubators, accelerators, VCs need to take more of a leadership position on entrepreneurial wellness and health, or do you think it's the individuals or the communities? Or, I mean, you know, I, there's sort of. There's, there's a sort of a crack appearing where, you know, people say they're founder friendly and that they're yeah. founder focused, but I think that's more like, well, we're not screwing them over on the term sheet. Right? Yeah. That's, that's we'll a, do a convertible note yeah. if that's what you really want. <laughs> that's yeah. founder friendly, right? But, yeah. but yeah. you know, I mean, you know, to a certain degree, um, Australian investors – 
to, to a certain degree inherit their persona from the US. And as you've sort of said, mm-hmm. the US is very much the founder is ultimately surplus the requirements at some yeah. point in the future. Um, I would like to see a sense of more self-care. Um, mm. I don't know if that's – I think it's compatible with investment outcomes personally. But, you know, what's your view? Is, is, it, is it the responsibility of the community to, to put programs in place for founder health and wellness? I think the challenge is – as an industry, we we struggle so hard to afford everything that we need to do mm. that um, it's 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 difficult to achieve anything else for free, mm. and um, an additional focus on that can't come for free. No matter who does it, they Someone's have to be give. yeah. There's a cost to them to do that. So you want to ideally align um, the cost with the benefit, so mm. that the people doing it don't give up because they discover at some point, oh, this is just costing me, I'm getting no benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the ecosystem, it's the accelerators and the investors um, who can possibly find a benefit to that cost. And I think the way to do that is to look at, well, you know, we don't need to spray and pray or we can spray less far. We can spray more over a smaller area if we take better care of the companies in our care. You know, if, if we work more closely with our portfolio and not just on their unit economics and their goals for the next quarter, but more on who they are as people and how we can support them, you know, in their whole of life journey, not just as, as their, their business leadership, um, then I think we can get, you know, better returns from a small portfolio. And then the, the founders don't become, you know, just grist for our mill, just the raw product that we need to create mm-hmm. value. Um, but instead they become, you know, a, a set of role models. And, and, you know, we talked before about how um, teaching people entrepreneurship should be about, you know, an internship experience where you get to spend time with people that you want to model, that you want to be like one day. You know, the, I guess, you know, one of the important steps to that is to actually create some of those mm. people, you know, mm. and not broken, you know, Jaded. Silicon Valley, yeah. you know, you know. <laughs> You know, we, we don't need any more um, characters from, from Silicon Valley mm. out there, you know, people without whole personalities. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'm hoping that, that some of the companies that I work with, you know, will, you know, are being led by people that will one day be a role model, not just as, you know, somebody that knew how to turn $1,000 into a million dollars, but, but somebody who knows how to live a good life. Mm. And, and took care of people along the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could talk to you for hours, but I know we're running out of time. So just some quick f- questions to finish off. Favourite book? Of all time? Oh, of today, even, whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a rattler for me. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, Isaac Eisenmelf's iRobot. Nice. Um, Favourite app or app that you use the most? Well, the app that I use the most would be uh, a music app called Mirror Music that that um, has a really good algorithm for uh, designing playlists. Um, it's in my portfolio, so disclosing that conflict of interest. Nice, that's yeah. okay. You can always pump and um, pimp your podcasts. Sorry, uh, your uh, your um, your investments. Favorite podcast? Oh, uh, favorite podcast. Ted Talk. Ninety nine percent invisible. Okay. And who's it by? What's uh, it? Sorry, it? so ninety nine percent invisible comes from somebody's phrase. Where they said good good design is ninety nine percent invisible, mm. and so it's a podcast about design, but it's not just about you know wanky design. It's about mm-hmm. the design of of social systems and and uh, um, political dissent and and headphones and microphones and everything in between. Um, fascinating, and it has um, for the for the. Um, 
subset of your audience um, that cares about this. It has the, um, a host with the sexiest voice in podcasting. <laughs> what do you mean? Not mine? <laughs> not mine and not yours. Oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Um, if you could invite somebody to dinner, dead or alive, uh, preferably coming to dinner alive, but however, uh, who would you be? Who would it be? Um, I think Steve Wozniak. Okay. Yeah. Have you met him? Um, oh, just, you know, in at the end of a conference with 50 other people all yep. trying to get his autograph at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, no, you know, so he's sort of waxes and wanes between being a very public person and a very private person mm. according to, you know, how many buckets he puts his foot in when he steps mm. out into public. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just think he's got a really um, unconventional way of, of looking at everything in this world. You know, so he's one of those engineers that can't walk past the microwave without yeah, he's helping definitely set one the of those clock, guys, you know. Yeah. Um, but he's also the sort of guy that would go, well, if you what you want to do is heat food, you know, maybe there's a better way than a microwave to do it. Mm. Uh, and then he'll go silent on you. And then partway through dinner, he'll go, you know what? Have <laughs> 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 you got any gaffer tape and a couple of magnets? And he is definitely that stereotypical. He comes across anyway as that stereotypical engineer. Yeah. So working in product management, I love that mindset. You know, I'm not of that mindset, but, mm. but you know, there's a degree of that in me and, and I love it. I, you know, I celebrate the magic that they create in the world by being that sort of person. It's just awesome. Fantastic. Um, an Australian business startup or tech leader that you think some needs some special love and attention that uh, you want to shout out to? Special love and attention. Um, well, there are people, I guess, so I'm a huge fan of Mike Cannon-Brooks okay. for um, remaining authentic to mm-hmm. who he really is um, with everything that he's achieved. Um, he and Scott built, you know, Atlassian with no venture capital because there wasn't any, you mm. know, not because, you know, they didn't believe in venture capital, <laughs> um, but incredible resi- resilience over the years, you know, an element mm. of, you know, to an extent, some right place, right time in, in their business, but still at the end of the day, enormous resilience and strength. Mm. Um, and still today when he gets on the stage, he's still, you know, I guess a scruffy nerd. I relate to his mm. scruffy nerdiness. And he's also been able to, to be publicly a whole person, mm. you know, so he hasn't been, you know, a narrow, you know, this is what Alassian needs me to appear to be on stage, but he's also stood out and talked about his own struggle with imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, he's been, you know, very active in, in uh, sustainability and, and ecology, renewable energy, things that he's passionate about. You know, I think, um, Given the right forum, he'd have a lot to say about um, a lot of different things about our country. Mm. Um, so you know, I admire that. I admire that that whole person approach that he has. Mm. Um, Nikki Shavak, um, Australia's um, venture capital um, godfather. <laughs> <laughs> you never want to play poker against him, um, but he also has a a really big heart as well. And he's one of those people that took you know an enormous risk um, several times and had some you know very successful inflections. Um, but those inflections came through just hard work and, and courage. Mm. You know, he, he, he set up Blackbird Ventures um, uh, and, uh, you know, that was as a result of his um, success running Startmate and he set up Startmate by, you know, getting tired of the rest of us complaining about the fact that Australia didn't have an accelerator program and, and said, well, up. I'm going to start one, you know, mm. knowing full well that he wasn't going to see any sort of financial return from that anytime soon, yep. um, but that it was necessary and important and he could, he had the right skills. So Fantastic. And uh, early stage startup that to watch 
Oh, don't rule out so you many can, conflicts of interest, man. Yeah, you can be conflicted. That's no conflict, no interest. Isn't that what they say in adventure? Uh, graduates of every accelerator cohort. Yeah, you don't want to preference any of your children, do you? Failed yet. No, no, because they, you know, they all, they all. The best thing about early stage tech is is that they are all unknown and mm. all undervalued, and they all have the potential to be incredible. You know, mm. and and so I've just come back from from Brisbane to Sydney after working with the Collider Accelerator there, and mm. and uh, you know people ask me, you know, which are your favourite? All ten of my favourites. You know, <laughs> that's such a diplomatic answer. No, like it's, it's really really true. It's and mm. and you know, I'm wrong as an investor. You know, a lot of the time as mm. well. So you know, I might say, well, these would be the three that I would write a check for if yeah. we had finished closing and made ventures. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm right. You know, yep. with all three or with any of them. Um, yep. I said before about that, you know, beautiful karmic moment when I open the pages of the AFR and read about somebody yep. that I didn't back five years ago who's now mm. doing really well. You know, I'm going to be wrong. But in, the, but in the meantime, every startup that comes through an accelerator program is worth paying attention to because, first of all, they've successfully gotten into an accelerator that had a couple hundred applications and only 10 places. Mm. Second of all, they've made it through the accelerator program itself, which mm. is like being on one of those reality television shows. You know? it's very, <laughs> they didn't very get public. voted off the island. <laughs> well, sometimes they implode during the accelerator program. Right. So that's kind of the accelerator equivalent. Mm. Um, um, but but, the, but the, the process didn't destroy them. And it is mm. very, very um, fast-paced. It's very intense. It's very public. There's lots of people seeing you succeeding or failing. It's very competitive. You know, there's 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 definitely a greater share of the rewards of doing the accelerator program for the for what everybody generally perceives to be the top companies in the program. Mm. So there's pressure to get into the top section of the cohort. Mm. And then you know, when you graduate from the cohort, there's the pressure to then do something with what you've been given. You know, so how do I grow the business from here? Mm -hmm. So you know, if somebody's thinking about getting started investing in early stage tech, then obviously I would say diversify and put some mm -hmm. of your money in early stage tech venture fund. Um, but then once you've done that, if you're looking to place some direct checks yourselves, then you know, look to the to the graduates from a country's accelerator programs because then you're looking at the cream of the crop. And if they've made it to the end of the accelerator program, they have tremendous potential because they have come from, from zero to one and you can be there from, from one to ten. Fantastic. Um, if people want to find out a bit more about you or M8 Ventures, where is your place on the internet that people can go to find out more about you? It's very complicated. We are http colon slash slash m, so letter m, number eight dot ventures. That's pretty easy. And if people want to find out more about you, are uh, you an Instagram or a Facebook or a LinkedIn guy? I'm a Twitter guy. A Twitter guy. Don't What's hit your... me up on LinkedIn because I'll say no. <laughs> I say it very gracefully, but I'll say no. What's your Twitter handle? On Twitter, I am B-I-G-Y-A-H-U, big Yahoo. I wanted to be Y-A-H-O-O. -O. It dates back to when I worked at Yahoo, but mm. you know they had a clever algorithm that stopped anybody from registering a, a Yahoo Mail account with the word Yahoo in it. Really? Yeah. I used to be the tallest person at Yahoo. <laughs> now I know so why. So I wanted to be the big Yahoo, yeah. Um, Alan Jones, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jamie. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Alan's interview. He is definitely one of the nicest and most generous people in the Australian startup ecosystem. If you have a startup, then I recommend you follow him on Medium. He has some awesome insights for founders. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please feel free to rate and review us on iTunes. 
Today's episode was brought to you by the Founder Lab, who deliver courses and programs to help build better founders. You can find out more about them at www.thefounderlab.com.au. And if you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out www.jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and subscribe to make sure you get all the latest podcast episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself. 